Now, what I'm going to ask you to do as you think about that is to turn to someone near you and just tell them what you think and hear what they think. So take a minute and do that. Would most people like to have a burning bush experience like Moses did? If I had to break down the people here this morning into two groups, I, I think I might call one group the pick me people. God, pick me. I'm ready. I want to be used by you. I want my life to count for something significant for your purposes. I can sing the send, uh, So Send I You song, and, and even though it, it, it honestly talks about the hardships that await me, ah, I want my life to count for something significant. I'm willing. Give me a burning bush experience like Moses had. Call me to something great. The other group I'd call the leave me alone group. God, please just leave me alone. <laughs> I love you, God. I appreciate your blessings, but please don't ask me to do anything too important or too hard. I'm too busy. I've got my hands full with life already. Uh, or I'm too comfortable. Or I'm too incapable. I, I'm not able. Or I'm too ashamed and too disappointed with myself. How could you use me? I'll do my little part for you behind the scenes, but please don't single me out like you did with Moses. Well, regardless of which type of person you are, this story has a lot to teach all of us here this morning. Because it teaches God's people what God is like and how God works and what sort of people God does single out in a special way to be used for his purposes. The story of God calling Moses is actually part of a family of stories. They're called call narratives in which God appears to someone and calls them to be his representative. And all of these call narratives have some common characteristics. For those of you who know your Old Testament stories, think of the stories where God appears to Gideon and to Samuel, to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In each story, God's people are in distress. And because of that, God shows up and he reveals himself to a person. And God calls that person to a task to be a savior or a prophet. In most cases, the person objects. In some way, protesting their weakness or their inability to fulfill the call. And then God gives assurance or some sort of sign that God will be with them. So as we look at this call narrative in the story of Moses, let's see what we can learn about what God is like, about how God works, and about what sort of people God uses. And who knows, we may even hear God speak to us here this morning. As we begin, Moses is definitely in a God-just-leave-me-alone phase. 
He's been in the desert 40 years. Stephen tells us it's 40 years in his speech in Acts 7. Imagine, after the high-flying life that, that Moses had being raised in the royal court of Egypt, he had the best of education, he had the best of everything. But Moses has spent the past 40 years tending sheep in a desert. Far from civilization, far from anything significant, Talk about low impact. Talk about your life not counting for anything. It's not that Moses hadn't tried. He'd, he'd stood up for God's people who were enslaved in Egypt. He'd, he'd taken a risk, even killing an Egyptian to rescue one of his fellow Israelites. But all that it had got him was a criminal record and a ruined life. And he'd had to run for his life. And now Moses was a murderer. He was a wanted man. He was a fugitive. He couldn't go back to his old life. And he'd no doubt long ago consigned himself to his failure and, and to, to living out the rest of his life in anonymity, raising sheep. He married a local girl. They started a family. This was his new life, and that's just the way it was. When we meet Moses in this story, he isn't looking to be used by God and he isn't aspiring to any great purpose. He isn't doing anything religious. He's just going about his business like every other day. And that's when God shows up. Unexpectedly in the middle of an ordinary work day calling Moses, Moses. God knows Moses' name. God knows Moses' address. And God has come seeking Moses. This is the first lesson that this story teaches us. God isn't only the God of those who are seeking him, but he's in fact a seeking God. God doesn't just limit himself to the religious. And he doesn't just deal with those who are looking for him. No, God is the God of all of life and He's present everywhere and He can show up at any time. And He seeks people out. And not just the pick-me people. Very often God calls and uses the God, please just leave me alone people. Think of the stories of Gideon and Samuel and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. In not a single one of those cases does the story start by saying, and this guy was praying fervently to God, saying, God, pick me, use me. No, these men were going about their business when suddenly God showed up. Now, don't get me wrong. Scripture does urge us to seek God, and God promises that, that if we seek Him, we will find Him, if we seek Him with all of our heart. And all of these men whom God called had to seek God fervently along the way after he called them. Often they, they sought God out of desperation because of the jams that he got them into. It's just that when God is raising someone up to do an important task, he doesn't often pick the likely candidate who we would pick. He doesn't limit, him, limit himself to those who are seeking him. No, he's looking for just the right kind of person with just the right heart. Whether or not that person on the outside looks particularly religious to us. God is a seeking God. 
Well, Moses was going about his day and he sees a bush burning. But as he looks at it, he realizes it's not burning up. It's just, it just keeps burning and burning. And this is a strange thing. So he goes over to look and one commentator remarks, we would like to go over and take a closer look too, as much as Moses did, but we cannot. How is this bush burning? What's going on here? Is it a vision? Is it an optical illusion? Is it a miracle? But the story doesn't give us details of what's going on here. The point is just that whatever this was, God was using it to get Moses' attention. Moses could later reflect on the significance of God appearing as a fire that needs no fuel in the midst of a bush that the fire doesn't consume. And I'll leave it to you to reflect on the significance of that as well. But for right now, the bush serves to catch Moses' attention because God is gently beginning a conversation with Moses. He's drawing him in. He's, he's preparing him to encounter God. God calls his name, Moses, Moses. And when Moses responds, here I am, God then lets Moses know that it is the Lord who has showed up in this bush looking for him. After all these years, these years of silence, these years of regret, these years of resignation, God shows up, big as life. So the second thing the story teaches us about God is that God is not unreal. God is really real. I don't know about you, but I've had months and, and I've had years when it seemed like God wasn't real. I didn't feel anything spiritual. I didn't see anything spiritual happening around me or in me. The world was going on without God, and pretty soon I sort of was too. And I wonder if Moses was there in that place of doubting God's reality five minutes before he saw that bush. Because you know, God can have great plans for you next year or next week. He can already be headed over to find you, but an hour before he gets you, it gets to you, the heavens can seem absolutely empty. And what about the Israelites down in Egypt groaning away in their slavery? I wonder if God seemed non-existent to them. How could they have any idea that at that very moment, God was at work somewhere out in the desert raising up a deliverer who soon was going to come and save them? Maybe you're longing for a fresh word from God or an answer to a prayer or or a fresh sense of, of God's loving presence. And you've been waiting so long that, that you're just about to give up hope. It seems like God isn't real. Moses and many others after him would, would give you this advice. Don't give up on God. Whether he seems like he's real to you now or not, hang in there. God is really real. He may be slow, but when he shows up, you'll realize how unmistakably real he is. Well, once Moses or once God has found Moses and gotten his attention, God warns him, don't come any closer. In the original Hebrew, this is a strong warning. I think of 
the old Yosemite Sam mud flaps that used to be on semi-trailers. I haven't seen one for a long time. Maybe I don't drive on the interstate enough. But Sam was there with a gun in each hand saying, back off, right? That's the idea of the language here. Back off and take off your sandals, which was a sign of respect in that day. Why? Because the ground that you are standing on is holy ground. It's holy because God is present there. God Himself is near. Moses has come over to see a miracle. He's come out of curiosity, but instead he's confronted by a holy God. And so he turns his face away. He's afraid to look at God. This is the next lesson of this passage. God is not a curiosity. God is holy. Many people are drawn to God out of curiosity. People are insatiably curious, aren't they? I mean, just have a a police car or an ambulance by the side of the highway with its emergency lights on, right? And pretty soon the traffic is backed up for miles because everyone's got to slow down and take a look. And people love a spectacle from circus acts and magic shows to Ripley's Believe It or Not to UFOs and Ouija boards. And we're curious about miracles. And and so if a miracle worker comes to town, people will flock to him. They flocked to Jesus, didn't they? And God does miracles. God is amazing. God could keep us captivated and enthralled forever. But God is not a spiritual three-ring circus. And while he may draw us to himself through his curiosity, he pretty quickly wants to teach us that he's much more than that. God doesn't perform for our curiosity or amusement. No, God comes on his terms for his purposes, not for ours. He's holy, he's powerful, he's pure, he's other than we are. And our best response is to take off our sandals, so to speak, to fall on our faces and to worship. Then we're ready to go forward in a relationship with God. So now in our story, God levels a low blow. He brings up Moses' past. Verse 6. I am the God of your father, your father back in Egypt. I'm the God of the past that you've been running from, trying to escape. Your past full of pain, full of disappointment, full of regret. You know, I've counseled a number of people over the years, and I can tell you that no matter how fast you can run, you can't outrun your past. And the road to your future eventually leads back through that past. And unless you deal with the hurt and the woundedness and the brokenness that's there, as painful and terrifying as that thought may be to go back there, unless you face it and and you open it up to God and you let God gently heal it and, and redeem it, unless that happens, you'll never fully be the person that God wants you to be. 
Well, God is about to send Moses back to his past. And God assures Moses that he's the God of Moses' past, the God of his parents and his people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses' ancestors. And it's at this point that we come to the heart of the story and the good news of the story. Verses 7 to 9, they're, they're arranged as a chiasm. And you might remember if you were here when I preached on the Christmas story, I think it was a snowy Sunday and a lot of people weren't here. But I compared a chiasm to the kids' book, Bears in the Night, when they go up Spook Hill. In a chiasm, A happens, then B happens, then C happens, then you get to the most important part, X, which is at the top of Spook Hill, and then you start going back down the other side in reverse order, C again, then B again, then A again. Chiasms are the most common organizing structure in the Old Testament, and we've got one here. Verse 7, the Lord says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Verse 7b, I have heard them crying out. And now verse 8, the key sentence, So I have come down to rescue them and to bring them to a good land of their own. And then we go back down the other side. Verse 9, And now their cry has reached me. Verse 9b, I have seen how they are oppressed. This is the gospel for Moses and for the Israelites. It is very, very good news. Thus, the, the next lesson that our story teaches, God is not uncaring. In fact, God cares even more than we do. Don't mistake God's silence or God's slowness for lack of concern. He sees His people. He sees our struggles. He sees our suffering. He hears our cry. It enters His ears. It enters His heart. And He's full of concern and compassion. And in His time and in His way, He will act. Don't ask me why His action takes so, so long sometimes. The, God's Word doesn't fully explain that, though it suggests it has to do with building our faith, giving us a strong, steadfast, deep-rooted faith. But God, God's Word does assure us that God's slowness, whatever its cause, never suggests that God cares any less or that His saving action is ever in doubt. Well, now that God has communicated to Moses his readiness to act, Moses' life is forever shaped and altered by this good news. Those whom God uses are always propelled along and, and pushed forward by a God who cares more than they do. Their lives and their ministries, the people whom God uses are shaped and fueled by the good news of God's concern. Isn't that true for us as followers of Jesus? In Jesus, God went so far and suffered so much to save people and to express His love for them. And yet we take so long to get around to telling anyone about it. 
God cares more than we do. And so God's always trying to get us in step with His good news and with His heart of care and concern. Well, God cared more than Moses did. And now we see God's care pressing in on Moses and and pushing him into action. Verse 10, God says, So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now wait a minute. God just said up in verse 8 that he was going to come down and rescue his people. Now he's asking Moses to do it. Literally, God says to Moses, Go so that I can send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. In other words, this is the way I'm going to save my people, Moses. You get moving, put one foot in front of another in the direction of Egypt, and as you go, I'll be sending you to save my people. You've heard the saying, not even God can steer a parked car. I think that's the idea here. God is saying to Moses, you get moving, And trust me that I'll be doing the steering and I'll give you what you need along the way. I'm going to use you to save my people. So here we have our next lesson about God. God doesn't usually do things himself in some spiritual airy-fairy sort of way. Rather, he usually works through people like you and me. People that he raises up to be his agents, his instruments, his hands and feet, his point people on the ground to work out his salvation in flesh and blood. Now, of course, God sometimes single-handedly gives dreams or visions or signs. We've, we've all heard you know, of the odd Muslim in Yemen or somewhere who, who ha- has a vision of Jesus one night and they're miraculously converted. God does do that, but by and large, that's the exception. Normally, when God wants to reach someone, He sends you or me to love them and to introduce His Son to them. And this means that sometimes our prayers are really abdications of our responsibility or they're a spiritual cover for our disobedience. I, like you, have prayed many times, God, help that person to to believe in Your Son. Or, God, help my workplace to be less corrupt and oppressive and more humanized. I haven't prayed that recently. Okay? <laughs> but I've prayed it in the past, like I'm sure many of you have. And at some point as I've prayed these kind of prayers, I realized that God was saying back to me, do you really want me to answer that prayer? Because you're my point person in that situation. Are you willing to step out and to be a significant part of the answer? God works through His people. We're the body of Christ on earth, right? Well, there are a couple of reasons that we often balk at being used by God. One reason is that it might be hard and uncomfortable, right? But another is that we recognize that we don't have what it takes to get the job done. It's too big. It's, it's over our heads. We're, we're overwhelmed. Moses feels this way. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? 
I don't think Moses is being stubborn here. I think he's being realistic and humble, particularly in light of his own past. Granted, later in his conversation with God, if we keep reading the story, he gets stubborn and he just flat out asks God to send someone else. And then God gets angry with him. But at this point, I don't think that's what's going on. Moses, I think, is expressing his weakness and his inability. A little later on, he, he, he points out to God that he seems to be a stutterer. How can he go and persuade Pharaoh, the greatest emperor in the world, to let God's people go? As I mentioned earlier, we see this kind of pattern again and again when God calls someone in the Bible. He, they, or they invariably confess their weakness and their inability to fulfill the call. When Gideon is called to save Israel, he protests, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Isaiah encounters God and cries, Woe to me! I am a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah, when he receives his commission, replies, Ah, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. So this is the last lesson about God from our passage. God is not seeking competent superstars. But He's raising up the weak and the incapable. Because let's face it, what God wants to do is way beyond any of our abilities. It's too big. It's too difficult. God has big dreams and big plans for His world. And there are big obstacles and there's big opposition in the way. I remember in college one summer, I was at a leadership training camp with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship that I was a part of. And I still remember what one of the speakers said. He said, if our vision or our plan for the coming year was something that we thought we could accomplish if we tried real hard, then it wasn't big enough to be God's vision. Because God calls us to things which are way out of our league. God wants us to rely on Him. God wants to show Himself to be great. And to give us the joy of seeing how He works, how He comes through, the awesome things He does. And competent, self-reliant superstars have a real tendency to get in God's way. They, they steal God's glory. They, they argue with God about the best way to get the job done. You know, as a church, we always need to guard against falling into the trap of pretending that we have it all together. We're all weak people. We're fail and we're fallible. I know that I am. And we need to be free not to have to pretend we're anything other than that. And we need to be free to dream the, the God-sized dreams of what God could do in Westchester County through a bunch of people like us. Because the key is verse 12. I will be with you. That's how God replies to Moses. I will be with you. Don't think you go alone. 
Don't think that it's your ability or your ingenuity or your smarts or your resources that's going to accomplish any of this. I'll use all that, but don't rely on it. Rely on me. Trust me. I've already got a plan. I'll guide you each step of the way. I'll make sure that you have everything you need to get my job done. All I'm asking is that you learn to care as much as I care for the people around you and for all the brokenness of my creation. Get moving, and I will be with you, and I'll take care of the rest. So here's my key biblical truth for this morning. When we know what God is really like, when we know that he seeks us out, that he's really real, that he's holy, that he cares more than we do, and that he works through people weak as we are, then we find our own place in his plans. That's Moses' story, and regardless of whether we have ever had a burning bush experience or not, that can be our story too. So let's pray. God, as we begin now in a moment to turn our hearts toward this communion table, we're reminded of how your greatest salvation comes through weakness. And we live in a culture, like most cultures, where the tide runs so contrary to that. And we have to confess, we so often get caught up in taking stock of our human resources and um, aspiring to be strong and smart and capable. Forgive us for making you so small in our minds. And I pray that this story would correct our perception and, and that we would increasingly learn to dream your dreams and that we would know the excitement that so many biblical characters knew of seeing you do amazing things and being used by you to do things they didn't think they could do. God, I'm not asking that you make us into pick-me people, but I'm asking that you come and that you seek us out and that you use us despite ourselves for your great glory. Amen.